0: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the
1: present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and
2: take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
3: Welcome back to the next picture show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with...
0: Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson,
3: Scott Tobias. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Robert Downey Sr.'s countercultural cult classic, Putney Swope, and its take on the advertising world. With this half, we'll take a look at another film happy to take swings at capitalism, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. This is Riley's debut as a film director, but music fans know him as the frontman of The Coup, a long-lived Oakland-based hip-hop group that, from its inception, has attempted to merge dope beats with radical politics. In some ways, Sorry to Bother You plays like an extension of that mission. Lucky Stanfield plays Cassius Green, a down-on-his-luck Oakland resident who takes a job at the bottom-feeding telemarketing firm of Regalview. But all is not as it seems at Regalview. When a senior employee played by Danny Glover informs him that success awaits him if he'll put on his white voice, confident, a little nasal, more than a little unconcerned, he'll find greater success. Soon he's promoted to the rank of Power Caller and allowed access to levels of the business he never imagined before. As in Putney Swope, there's a lot going on here, including a foray into the art world by Catcher's girlfriend Detroit, played by Tessa Thompson, the Worry-Free Corporation and its promise of lifelong employment, a strike, and animal-human hybrids created by supercapitalist Steve Lift, played by Army Hammer. What is this movie trying to say, and does it say it successfully? We'll talk about it after the break.
1: I just really need a job.
0: Audio two. This is telemarketing. Uh,
1: stick to the script. Hey, hello. Um, uh, Mr. Davison. Cash is green here. Sorry to bust. Bar-
0: Let me give you a tip. You wanna make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm, I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young boy. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. <laughs> As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. You're doing so good with the voice thing. Holla holla holla
1: holla halla. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Alright. Yeah. You're going upstairs, power caller. They
3: even have their own elevator.
2: Welcome, power caller. I hope you did not masturbate
1: today. We need you sharp and ready to go. I'm to I got promoted. I'm a power caller.
2: What do they yeah. sell?
1: They're not selling the police selling. No, well, there's no amount of money that'll make me do that. Here's the starting
0: salary. Well, man, I'm gonna have to get me some new suits. Whatever I wear, know I'm here to be
2: clear. It is morally Leah Macy. I can't ride with you. I'm doing something that I'm really good at. Cash. I wanna make you a proposal. I can see that you would wanna say no, but I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering.
0: You are awesome. Oh, yeah. All right. Some for the homies and some for me. Hell, yeah.
3: That's right. So, first of all, did this movie work for you? Yes. Uh, yes. I'm say <laughs> sure. yes For me too.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, we're, we're, that, that's, are we done? We solved it,
0: guys. We solved cinema. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I felt myself. I felt it losing like a little bit of energy and focus toward the back half. But even there, I'm thinking about all the things I liked about this movie. It is such a. It's a strange, idea-packed movie that's really funny and you know, kind of like as I stressed above, it's on mission. It definitely has a point to get across, and it gets it across. It does so in very clever ways that don't feel like edutainment.
2: I was delighted watching. This film throughout just because I never knew where it was going to go next, and that is despite the fact that I have been reading about and editing pieces on this film for several months now. Mm -hmm. Like our Alyssa, our film critic, reviewed it out of Sundance, and she interviewed Boots Riley, Lakeith Stanfield, and Terry Crews about it, and I edited all those. And like I've I've read a lot about this film going into it, and I still was like constantly surprised and like not knowing where it was going while I was watching it. And that's like, I, I talked a little bit in the Putney Swope half of this conversation about feeling like disoriented and not in a good way at some times with that film. Like this film, I did feel disoriented, but I was like totally along for the ride the whole time
3: nothing yeah. will prepare you for the echo sapiens I don't yeah. think
2: <laughs> yeah I, I, I knew there was a shock coming like I knew that there was like sort of a little body horror moment coming but I thought it was coming with his white voice like him not being able to turn off his white voice and it ended up being something completely different
0: <laughs> yeah the echo sapiens like I I, saw, I first saw this film with Sundance and I but I didn't see the first screening of it and film Twitter started blowing up with all of these tweets about horse cock and I was just <laughs> I was like that's I, I have I, from what I understand what the film is about. Why is that the thing that literally everybody is focusing on? But it's it's still radical to show a, a naked penis in a film. And it's apparently even more radical to show, like, a knee length naked penis on a.
2: <laughs> a Why? Why a are we horrific, so puritanical,
0: <laughs> A horrific horse monster. There are just, there are things, much like with Putney Swoop, there are things that this movie does that feel like the director doesn't know the rules or doesn't care about the rules and is, like, fomenting revolution, cinematic revolution. And it just feels, both of these films just feel really daring. And to some degree, it's, sorry to bother you, feels daring because it feels like it's cramming in so many things. I'm reminded of the interviews I've done with directors making their first films who were like, I don't. I didn't know if I was going to get to make a second film, so I had to cram in everything I wanted to say. This film feels like it is commenting on so many things, uh, you know, ranging from from capitalism and advertisement and the the gig economy to viral fame to just the the horrors of unchecked corporate malfeasance to how we're presented uh, racially to each other, and just on and on and on a safe film that's polished and planned is less interesting to me than something like this. That's all over the place in a crazy fun way.
1: I feel like retweeting everything you just said <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, it all, all of us really. I just, it, because it is such a spontaneous film. It's a little bit rough around the edges. Um, you don't necessarily know what's, what's going to happen next. Um, it's not, not necessarily even going to be a smooth ride getting there but the trade off for that is sheer excitement and audacity and having to contend with all of these themes which I'm guess is the point of this program to do but there's a lot there are a lot of little elements here that you can pick apart and examine and get a lot out of. I mean I, you just mentioned the, like the gig economy. I don't know if we've had a f- film I can't think of a film that's really articulated that spe- very specific thing as well as sorry to bother you or even really bother to address it and yet it's such a major part of the economy as it is right now and the way young people live right now and the you know, how the people overwork and they, li- they live sort of hand to mouth i mean it feels so real and so of the moment and maybe that's uh, you know as a putney swope-esque excitement to it
3: it's uncompromising i mean boot's riley describes himself as communist i mean he's, mm-hmm. he's that you know that far to the left and really feels like what will change things uh is a full-on work stoppage across the across the country and that is in here that's definitely at the heart of this movie uh it's, it's not even like sugar to make the medicine go down it's just it's just all folded into this really great freewheeling satire that does touch on like you say a lot of stuff and it's like if that is your position you do not see developments like the gig economy and the sort of, you know, the hero worship of your Elon Musk's of the world, which I think, I think it's a lot of where the Army Hammer character comes from. Um, you do not see this as positive developments in your lifetime. I think you see these things as things taking a turn for the worse. And I think there's there's an urgency to this film as well because of that. Yeah.
2: In, in terms of it, like commenting on, you know, the world today or whatever, like this film has been around in some. Variation. I think he finished his first draft in 2012, and then there was like a screenplay that uh, ran in McSweeney's, I think in 2014. Like, he's been working on this film for a long time, and that may account for its overstuffness. But I think, in terms of, you know, things like the gig economy or commenting on Elon Musk, like, it may not have been initially formulated as comments on those specific things but I think they may have grown out of the deeper issues that enable those specific things that Riley is interested in he he saw it coming yeah Yeah. there's
3: a there's the coups 2012 album is is uh, um, sorry to bother you and it's got a track called, we've got a lot to teach you, Cash is Green. So it's like, uh, yeah. It's, it's
2: gonna be my Your Next Picture show. It is still gonna be my Your Next Picture oh, show. Well, oh, wow. Well, <laughs> that's fine. Spoiler. So, like
3: <laughs> yeah. um, I've heard there might be an album, and we'll generally talk about that. Um, but, um, there's parts of it that felt like a little grounded in in, in older trends. Like, I, I mean, telemarketing is obviously still with us, but maybe not in the form so much as it is here like selling encyclopedias and such maybe it is maybe just don't call me i don't know i would think not
0: selling encyclopedias specifically like but
3: i think it is sort of like the lowest possible level of capitalism you you could you could cover so it makes sense from that point of view
0: i mean it's it's very much built around the idea of like your inherent worth is based on how much you can bother and manipulate people and it 's very clear in everything that comes out of army hammer 's character that like workers at that level are seen as uh, interchangeable and disposable and and property i mean he 's literally created a system under which people can sell themselves into new slavery in exchange for like, horrible-looking meals and uncomfortable-looking working oh, conditions. The chandeliers, though. The
3: classy chandeliers. It
0: is true. I, I think one of the hilariously subversive things about this film is just the fact that they have advertising that we see over and over for these work centers where you can sign yourself onto as as a permanent worker. And even in the attempts to sell them, they look horrible. Like, there's there's no way to gloss over just how depressing they are. Even with people... Grimacing through trying to sell the delicious food and comfortable living conditions, like they, they always look like somebody's prodding them with a taser from behind. Like the the message just comes across that you can't put a gloss on how horrible this stuff is.
2: Speaking of worry free and what we were just talking about in terms of its it being relevant to today, this is from the interview that Alyssa did with Boots Riley where they were kind of talking about this. And apparently in the 2014 version of uh, the screenplay that was published in. Mix sweeney's the line that is now worry free is resurrecting america used to be worry free is making america great again mm-hmm. <laughs> but actually like had to roll that back because it was like as, as riley says the real world made my script too on the nose so oh, wow. yeah
1: yeah i wonder i, I was thinking about worry free is there a military metaphor here there's a, it almost feels like the same kind of phenomenon mm-hmm. of people who just can't make ends meet. they're young what are they going to do i mean there's something there's the lure of worry free of course is, is the title is is being able to sign up give your give your body up to this organization and be assured three square a day and a place to sleep and be able to leave the worries of trying to make it in the economy behind
0: uncertainty you're basically giving up uncertainty in exchange for horror (laughs) <laughs> Which yeah. is, you know, kind of a the thing we all have to contend with on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you go th- into it with a certain... There's enough salesmanship with both Worry Free and with the military to make you think like, well, maybe this could work. Maybe this could be a, a positive step in, in my life, maybe it's not going to be so bad.
0: I mean, it reminds me more than anything of some of the things that Downsizing did. You know, Downsizing also is a film about kind of giving up your future mm. in order to put yourself in a, an artificial environment where your future is theoretically entirely guaranteed for you because you're, you've are you shrunk down to three inches tall <laughs> and your yeah. money is more valuable. Like, yeah. it's, it's the same sort of, you've been promised something that somebody else is profiting off of
2: that supposedly benefits it's you, uh, but ultimately you're you have become a product.
1: Mm, yeah.
2: The military connection is interesting. I hadn't really thought of that because my mind just went immediately to the development over the last decade or so of the dissolving of the work home divide. You know, when you think of these big corporations like Google or Amazon that like create these campuses that enable their employees to they can be there all the time if if they want to you know and like mm. the evolution of your job becoming your whole life and becoming your identity and taking over every aspect of your life and like so that's what i was seeing as the thread that was being uh, pulled on with Rory free but Oh, um, definitely. I, yeah. It was just—it
1: was a, uh, just a—it was a freestyle yeah. kind of thought on my on <laughs> no, my no, part. No, no,
2: and and no, it, it totally makes sense. And I, f- I forget it's I, I know, like we definitely see like them see Cash selling worry-free labor to a cell phone company, but like I feel like there was also maybe an implication of, with the Army Hammer character of it being used for. Um, Arms dealing. Uh, yeah, for arms dealing. Yeah, yeah so. there's,
0: I mean, it's left deliberately vague. Like there's sort of a list of, of horrible things they supply, but I think it's kept as vague as it is because they he wants you to use your imagination. The, mm-hmm. the idea is simply the profit comes from doing all all of the terrible things in the world. Like what you need to succeed in a capitalist society is to completely sell out, sell your soul, and accept that there is nothing that is not, basically valued by how much money you can make out of it. And I I think that not pinning that down very specifically is part of like letting you engage with it. However you want to like politically or emotionally, what do you think is bad? They're doing it. Good. Yeah. I mean,
1: Keith, I mean, in Genevieve, I guess as well, I mean, you've been exposed to the albums by the coup. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the, what impressed me, I guess about this, this film is that unlike a lot of Marxist entertainment that I've seen certainly on film, um, there's not a propagandizing element to it. It, it has a very nuanced understanding of, of the way the world actually works, mm-hmm. um, that it's not completely driven by this overarching ideology or this attempt to persuade people necessarily. Is that is that also true of the albums?
3: Yeah, and there's a lot of humor on them and there's a lot of storytelling and. There's there's a lot – you get a it's, lot of different flavors from, yeah, from the yeah, I mean, of, over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's – like,
2: sonically, it sounds a lot like boom-bat party music, you know? Like, the, this is – it doesn't sound like it's, you know, quote-unquote serious music with serious ideas. Like, the the coup definitely sort of Trojan horses these ideas into very, you know – consumer friendly sounding music which i think is part of like the great irony that they're mm-hmm. that they're playing with you know i mean obviously the coup has never been a huge like mainstream success but in terms of sort of the type of rap sounds and motifs that, that they trade in it is definitely reflective of that sort of sound.
3: Yeah, I did a piece on the Coups music videos for Vulture and kind of how the videos reflected the sensibility over over the years. Uh, so it's a, that's kind of evolved with them, too. And there, there's, a, there's a few little pieces here and there that kind of turn up in Sorry to Bother You. Um, one of the best songs and one of the best videos is a total break, though, with that sort of uh, the, the party music aspect, which is uh, Being Jesus and the Pimp. in a 79 Granada last night, which is like this very long story about a kid in an abusive relationship exacting revenge on a pimp. And it's total like Pulp Fiction material, but it's all told, it's all very affecting and told from, from you know, totally just deflating the idea, any sort of glorification of pimping and and and, and whatnot, and which is and, you know another extension of capitalism, at it's it's most extreme. So, uh, but yeah, no, the coups, whole discography is all digging into. I, I, I'd start with the early stuff, and but it, you can you can work backwards too. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah,
3: we should talk about the performances. This is kind of in some ways the the year of Lakeith Stanfield, and Tessa, Tessa Thompson. I guess Tessa yeah. Thompson bleeds over in lot the, they both bleed over in the last year as well. But um, uh, they're both. You both great in this movie. This is, there's a, uh, I mean, Stanfield just has this quality that makes him perfect for this. He's like an everyman, but also kind of just a little off, just a little eccentric. He can kind of, this is the perfect person to have this adventure. And Thompson is, you know, really compelling as she's as, a, girl
2: as, as, as a, girl, <laughs> a girl with soul as a
3: girl with soul with a definitely a greater sense of style the kill 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 burger murder, yeah, earrings and
2: which are for sale on the anna perna store i uh, mean the movie itself sells those earrings yeah, yeah but it
3: also i mean it's it's seen through in it's really interesting way too. where she has her own white voice to sell her art and that it is a condition that go, extends beyond just sort of the telemarketing the most obvious aspects of, of the uh, market society
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that she has made such a career out of characters who are very confident and very forthright Mm -hmm. and very kind of set in themselves. And it feels like Lakeith is making a career out of people who are mostly just a bit baffled, just a bit thrown by the world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like his performance in Get Out, which is so chilling and memorable, is very different from his performance in Netflix Death Note, which is not a good film, Mm -hmm. but he plays a uh like a very buttoned down serious sherlock type um who's also very like physically forward, but at the same time he just he's, he has a soulfulness he's got soul mm-hmm. i mean he's got a vulnerability. That Tessa Thompson is in no way projecting and that makes for just sort of an interesting dynamic between them because he's so clearly doing so many of these things out of a desire to provide and to keep them safe and to keep her safe and you know to be a man basically in a world where his identity is based in his ability to provide and her confidence and willingness to break down the system while he's getting his way deeper and deeper into it I think is a really good dynamic that wouldn't work if they weren't both such sympathetic like player characters. Basically,
1: yeah, I mean, he has no set values in the way that she does. So, so that, which which makes him malleable enough to succeed in the way that he does, but also to be compromised well, in the way that yeah. he
2: yeah. And he's also like defined right from the beginning by worry. Like, like the first conversation between them is him worrying about death, you, you know, <laughs> or, or like dwelling on it. Like, in as far as like that character's arc, like it makes sense for someone who is just so insecure about like you said, their place in the world or like what, what happens next, you know like the bigger picture, so to, so to speak uh, yeah, While you're in there, you also kind of have to give a shout out to Danny Glover,
0: who was yeah. a very small role, but it's so good. He's just, he's so perfect it's just, you know, the voice of received wisdom who who comes in to, you know, drop a little nugget
2: of information and then kind of get out There, I mean, there are a lot of fun, like small performances yeah, Terry Crews, and not even a small part, but Steve Ewan is, is squeeze like i thought that character and that performance are are great i'm not really a i, I never really watched the walking dead so i didn't have a whole lot of context for him and his performance style but i really liked him a lot here
3: he he, he was on the walking
2: yeah. Dead*. yeah oh yes i oh, remember, I remember right. oh. that <laughs> uh, i really
3: like
1: speaking of that character i, I like the predicament that like stanfield's character's put in at that moment when he's getting promoted up to the power caller mm-hmm. and he has these allegiances that he's made with other union workers uh who, who are, want to unionize and want to fight the system and now he's part of it and and it's very hard to ask someone to sacrifice so much benefit that they would get from moving up the ladder to fight alongside you and it's a you can really feel that eating away at him and it's part of that again that character of, of, of having no set values that you just sort of tears them apart and you kind of live with that i admire that a lot about the film
0: they also like that insecurity just leads him into like i'm i'm really not big on discomfort humor i'm really not big on laughing at somebody who's squirming through an awful situation but that party at army <laughs> hammer's place where he's called upon first to reveal his uh his big gangster backstory which he points out he doesn't have one of and then he's While called sitting
2: like cross-legged on the floor in in front of a fireplace <laughs> yeah. basically
0: uh you know being presented with this like satiricon level uh grouping of of partiers lolling across each other waiting to be entertained there's so much symbolism in so many of the shots in this movie that's uncommented on but then they they ask him to rap mm. and it's such a squirmy racial setup, because it's basically, we have preconceptions about you. We're a bunch of rich white people. You're black. This is the only way we know how to interact with you. And then they force him into it. And rather than walking away, (laughs) he starts shouting like the N-word in a rhythmic fashion, which is so catchy. (laughs) And they all pick it up and start chanting along. And it's like... You can understand why they would because it's catchy and they feel that he's giving them permission and that's just something we've seen so much dialogue mm-hmm. about in society mm-hmm. lately the you know why can't i say that word how can i get permission to say that word that guy got fired for saying that word and what he thought in a in a private investor call mm-hmm. and he thought it was in quotes and it really wasn't
1: it's so much better to engage with the, these situations in this film than in real life, <laughs> in real life
0: yeah. <laughs> but, but that whole sequence it's so funny it's so uncomfortable and that and afterward, when he just kind of like goes off into a corner to lick his wounds, like the film doesn't spell out, doesn't explain, like what he's feeling in that moment, you can just see it on the Keith Sandfield's face.
3: Yeah, it's someone who decided to sell out, and then the whole selling out process has been a reckoning with how much that's going to take from him. And this is, seems like the lowest point he's reached to that point.
0: And I don't think he sees any way back up out of it. You know, he he, I mean, he knows he can give up everything that he has earned and attained and that he feels he's good at. And that doesn't seem possible. So how does he come back from heaping, heaping, heaping humiliation? It's a it's a really uncomfortable film. And I think that's one of the reasons we all feel so refreshed by it is just the fact that it contends with really uncomfortable things.
3: It seems like a good place to wrap it up. We'll, we're, we're not done. We're sorry to bother you, but we're going to talk about it in relation to Putney Swope when we come back with Connections. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. I got no white voice. Oh, come on. You know what I
2: mean? You have a white voice in there. You can use it. It's like when you're pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody Uh, get hurt. All right, man, I'm just trying to give you some gain. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. People say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood.
0: Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regalview. View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did
3: I? Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Well, I mean, there's, you know, where do you start? Um, (laughs) I I, I think, let me start with surrealism, because I think that's one element of, sorry to bother you, we didn't touch on that much above how it'll just kind of break with reality like early on the telemarketing scenes where they, they mm-hmm. literally drop his desk into very, to the people he's calling it's such a, it's so great and yeah. like the way it's the way it's staged the way it's played where just stanfield's character it seems like it's really happening but it also captures like you know I hate it when people call me <laughs> <laughs> I am actually everyone but especially telemarketers you know yeah. and, and the, that that intrusiveness and the invasiveness it's like i and right back to the title like, sorry to bother you. It is, you know, this is me reaching into your space to try to get some money uh, at the heart of it, no matter how we dress it up with the script.
0: And I feel like Putney Swope doesn't go nearly as far into surrealism. There are a bunch of things it does in terms of like repetition. And we've kind of joked uh, on a couple of them, but just in terms of a character saying the same thing over and over and over until it leaves the arena of reality and to me, that feels, it feels like poetic. It feels like we've, we've sort of left cinema behind and we're moving into slam poetry. But it very rarely works for me in the way that like the Sorry to Bother You drop-ins do. Because we all know what that's symbolizing. We all can relate to it. Like the, the insane repetition of certain phrases like the girl's got to have soul. I'm not really sure what those things are meant to accomplish in Putney Swope.
2: Yeah. And speaking of like confusing surreality in Putney's Swope, what's the... Um, uh, Hing? Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole Hing monologue. Can, I love can, that.
0: I, 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 explain like, I, it to me. I, 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 felt like I, I felt like when we were talking about moments that worked for us, I went through too many of them, so left that one out. But the whole Hing speech uh, where the guy just confronts Putney and uh, a couple of other people in the street and starts into this like... Maybe Hingleberry or Hingsario. Hing spells nothing, begins nothing possible unto Webster. It is my very, very own Hing. Like, it is entirely possible that that is a reference to something that happened in Robert Downey Sr.'s life or something that was going on in art art at the time and I'm just missing the reference. But for me, it brought up so many sensations of the way people right now try to find anything that is theirs that they can hang on to, that can be their brand, that they can... Mm -hmm be the first person to present on social media that they can kind of wrap their image around. This guy has one thing and he's presenting it to like the most authoritative, powerful guy in this like creative industry. Like he's, it looks like it's a resume. Mm-hmm. I've created a thing. Like mm-hmm. it's possible that you could share in this thing. It may be a meaningless thing, but like it's my thing and nobody else has it. And Putney just kind of looks at him and is like, okay man and just keeps going and it's one of many ideas that's maybe
2: not fully developed but i i find it really resonant i mean i certainly remembered it i just didn't understand it at all <laughs> but it, it, i was t- baffled by that moment too jenny so. okay okay good um <laughs> i really enjoyed it part of it is just the performance though in in terms of surrealism and putney soap like they're not technically surreal But I feel like the way that the ads function in the movie is sort of a break with reality that you could call like borderline surreal because so many of them are so clearly not any sort of advertising that you would ever see on television, you yeah. know? So they become these little pockets of, you know, I guess satire, but some of them are just so strange, like you can't eat an air conditioner, you know? like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a thing
1: where you're, what's the difference between the surreal and absurd? Like absurd, right. absurd describes that, it a that, lot, That, that than exact
2: surreal. line went through my mind yesterday when I was like preparing for this. Like, what's the distinction between surreal and absurd in this context? Because I'm not really clear yeah. on I it. I think
3: it might be Putney Swift speaking in Robert Downey Sr.'s voice where it just kind of strange and off-putting versus uh catch the screen speak- sounding like david cross you know <laughs> yeah. which is uh, a whole nother level and it has a has a deeper meaning and and uh and sorry to bother you
2: yeah because the Downey voiceover was kind of a matter of necessity like uh the actor couldn't remember his lines that's that's, uh, that, that's, that's the what story says, yeah anyway. yes yeah. yes that's what he says and he says that he had to dub them because of that whether that's true or not you know who knows but like in sorry to bother you it is so clearly like part of the conception of the film you know with the idea of a white voice
0: and it's also i mean in in sorry to bother you it's so important that what they're doing is putting on a pretense of being someone they're not in order to sell something that has no value to people Mm -hmm. that don't want it. Whereas in Putney Swope, I feel like it takes you out of the narrative entirely, because here's a man that you're supposed to be respecting for his authenticity, and what you're hearing is so Mm -hmm. obviously artistically not him. If it was an aesthetic choice that wasn't based in that reason, if it was something that he found satirical or surreal, I think it actually has the opposite effect of whatever was intended.
1: Yeah, I'm, I guess, willing to to give him the benefit of the doubt that uh, Robert Downey Sr. about why the necessity of doing it, but I think there is a, a choice in the in the way that he projects this voice. I mean, it is a voice, and it's very consistent. I mean, it's like it's you know to to the point of being. I mean, it's not nuanced. It's he's he's just barking this. It, this it kind of sounds voice. like he's
2: like uh, talking through a vo- Vocoder? Of, no, like a, when you have a tracheotomy, the the, the thing that you hold <laughs> to, just to your neck. Are, are they okay? I don't. I don't, I don't know. Think no, so, no. I think yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It has I've I've that. Talk, a
1: talk box. A talk I One of those words. Yeah. I mean, so there's a choice there, right? I mean, to make to make the voice what what it is, but it definitely doesn't. Whatever the point of it is, has not come through nearly as strongly as having David Cross do or Patton. Oswald? And, and Patton Oswalt <laughs> as well. <What> a, yeah, <laughs> good choices for both of those voices. For, so good, good.
3: Well, and that brings us to another issue, which which is race as it plays out in both these movies, the way that the white voices is, uh, is sort of access to a different level of, of, uh, of the world. Uh, I'm sorry to bother you, and very explicit racial uh, theme of uh, Putney Swope.
0: Yeah, with sorry to bother you in particular, like having having seen it at Sundance and then not having seen it for months. I kind of came back to white voice as just uh, you know a, a nasal friendly voice that that doesn't sound threatening. I'm really afraid that what Robert Downey Sr. is trying to do in Putney Swope is project what he thinks of as blackness, which is like deep and threatening. Mm. If he had to record it over later. Like he's clearly using ADR. Why didn't he just get the actor to do
2: the ADR after the fact? That's yeah, what bothers me. It, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, or or, an, or another black actor. There there were plenty of black <laughs> actors were, on that set. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's it's an interesting it's an interesting choice. And and uh, yeah, I, th- I think he wanted something as off putting as that voice because it's so prominent in, in, in the film. I mean, it brings us into the whole set of issues here. It was like you know how radical can he be with these thoughts and. and how far can you take them as a, as a white director i'm not going to answer that question here i don't think we're going to settle that but uh, you, you know uh, he's definitely not shying away from racial issues either and there's a difference in terms of the period
1: too i mean the notion of overdubbing someone's voice in a film 1969 was not uncommon or something that people were not used sure. to I'm goldfinger
3: um, you know we've talked about that
1: yeah and, and now but sorry to bother you it's obviously a choice i mean right. and, and one that Is very strong and 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 resonant a big part of the movie
0: a part of what drives it in sorry to bother you is like as i say having having seen it at sundance and then not for a while i had these memories of what white voice meant and it mostly was just sort of like the comedic element of these ridiculous voices coming out of these established actors but glover gives a, a detailed explanation of what it means and it's you know, it's, it's political. It, it, it's privilege. Yeah. You know, the the belief that you have nothing to worry about, uh, yeah. that mm. everything is fine. Everything is like your future is sorted. Basically, yeah. there's,
2: there's the whole worry theme. And you again. don't need <laughs> the
1: sale. You know, yeah. you, mm-hmm. you're, you're relaxed and confident and and not desperate at all to, to get the sale. So it's much more of like a conversation of like, hello, friend. <laughs> I have something for you. Uh, you know, it's not, not like I need this commission to make rent.
0: I think it it is interesting that the people that we see in the worry-free commercials who have sold their, themselves into worry-free are if not exclusively white people then certainly prominently white people. Like I'm I'm hard-pressed to point out another really positive portrayal of a white person in Sorry to Bother You. But we are being told that this isn't just a matter of like one white guy who's reintroduced slavery solely for people of color. Like he,
2: everybody is under him. He has purchased everybody. I, that said, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am that all the equis sapiens are black men.
3: I think, I think you're right. Yeah. For,
2: Forrest Whitaker is the voice of the the one that we hear. And then the one that Cash speaks to in the Paddy Wagon I'm pretty sure is a, a black character.
3: And I think that goes to what Tasha was saying too that there's within the sort of the confinements of, of this very far advanced beyond humanity uh version of capitalism in the film, there's there's uh the virtual slavery of that white people get and there's the, there's like the, sort of the subhuman uh enslavement that, that black people right. get and that's that's
2: and and the, the negation of your black identity as you move up in the world as evidenced by the there's no Know, white voice only on the on the power caller sure level you, you know and the as cash becomes more successful and has more material success his white voice like, like he can't control his white voice like it comes out when he's not trying to do it um, it's a really
3: powerful metaphor yeah played out in, in extremely uh, extremely uh, effective ways
2: yeah
0: it's also clear that uh, worry free is being sold to black and white communities differently mm, you know yes. we see the advertisement not just the TV advertisement but like uh, billboard advertisement for basically the white version of worry free which is you know very family oriented and then the black version you know in the black community is you know prove that you're a good baby daddy sign on for this and it's like a solo black man who is expected to sign himself away like there's a, a lot of class issues as well as race issues just endemic in how it's being presented and then there's the fact that army hammer himself is so enthused by what he thinks he's offering poor people mm-hmm. like I, I think it's actually really important to the satire of the film that he definitely does not think that he's doing anything wrong right. he he thinks that he has brought this great and fascinating thing to the world and one of my favorite little details from the film is just as he's washing. Cassius watch his commercial for people being turned into EquiSapiens like he's watching him with the avidity of a first time novelist giving their 8,000 page manuscript to their significant other for the first time and just like you're going to read this and I'm going to sit here and watch you and watch every twitch on your face as you watch like he's so into it
3: well, he did hire Michelle Gondry, or <laughs> well, not Michelle Gondry, but it's
2: like Gondry yeah. or yeah. something. There's, like that. There's, a, there's a story there. Yeah, right? there. Yeah. Oh, what's the story? It's in Alyssa's
3: interview. Yeah.
2: So basically, he did this stop motion animation thing, like with Michelle Gondry in mind, and he basically the way he put it is, I didn't have to ask permission, but I really respect Gondry, so I like told, I like showed it to him, and like, hey, I'm I'm doing this. Like, is it okay that I put your your name on it? And Gondry was like well that's not really my style of animation someone might think I did that and and, <laughs> and then Gondry was kind of like oh well you know you could pay me and I can actually do it and Boots and Riley is like I, I don't have the money to pay you for this and Gondry was like oh and it was
3: it was like shortly before the film needed to premiere too right?
2: Yeah yeah. like basically it came down to the, like, Gondry saying like yeah it's fine but then like immediately after leaving the meeting Boots Riley got a call saying that uh, Michelle says no you have to change it and Riley's like well I don't have to but I will, and now I'm mad at you forever, Michel Gandhi. <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in in that interview with Alyssa, he says, and I'm going to continue to diss him in each film until he answers me back. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, I mean,
0: that's promising if he wants to make more films. Yeah. I, I like the sound of that. Yeah,
3: yeah, me too. I, I would definitely be up for more British Riley films to come.
2: And going back to the like Army Hammer's whole pitch to Cash, like what he is offering Cash specifically, and this I guess kind of opens us up to one of our other connections, like he is offering Cash the opportunity to be like a planted revolutionary, like the Martin Luther King figure among EquiSapiens. And that is sort of just a, a real mind bender in terms of like what this film is saying about revolution within a corporate structure and i i would say that is pretty directly connected to some of the themes <laughs> in, in butney swap
3: yeah i just about how how the system co-ops everything and tries to bring everything in with, within it but what, what it can't cast out it co-ops and and that's a really insidious idea that play there
2: and i think and sorry to bother you when combined with the whole union thing it's i think it's commenting on the nature of like individual revolutionaries as opposed to a collective or revolution as as a collective concern, you know, like something that people do together versus a someone who is held up as a symbol of revolution, you know, and what the relative value or worth of those two things are.
0: One of the other things I really wanted to hit on with both of these films is just sort of the question of of art, who it's for and what it looks like. With Tessa Thompson's character, you know, we have her creating the the giant earrings that are now for sale. But we also have that strange interlude with her performance art where people are throwing cell phones and sheep blood at her, um, where she's like painting these giant clunky assemblages of wood in the shape of Africa and there's a sense that she's doing something insanely non-commercial and that's what makes it art that's what defines it as art is the fact that it's completely unsellable I feel like in Putney Swope there's a pretty strong implication that the, the ads that they create are meant to be art. And then if it, it, they're successful art, because they're sold, because mm-hmm. they're saleable, because people appreciate them and hone in on them and, and stay home to watch them, because they take such a radical approach to selling things. It, it's almost like, you know, by having a woman with soul dancing mm-hmm. around in smoke, saying something about how you can't eat a refrigerator. It's almost like saying because you can't necessarily define what's being sold or how or why that makes this ad art like that's what it it feels like the the film is saying at some points to me so i mean it kind of just becomes a question i think in both films of like what is art who is it for like is it a meaningful but distinction
3: i think with detroit it's not so much that it's unsellable as it's just going to a very rarefied clientele it's, i mean it's not like people aren't there And aren't supporting what she's doing. It's just its this very upper level art crowd. I think it's just a matter of, of, you know, it's kind of like she's become the power seller of Mm -hmm. the art world.
1: So what does it say then? What are the then both of these films must naturally be talking about their own author's relationship to art and capitalism and mm-hmm. how they put their own work out into the world the image they're trying to project and what they consider success to be working within or working outside of the system right i mean they're they kind of they have to be by nature movies about them, themselves in that
2: respect yeah i mean i mean downey was working was making sort of avant-garde advertisements when he got the idea for this film maybe not avant-garde isn't quite the right word like but he was i guess working in like it wasn't a a agency but it was like a film house you know and they kind of this is in one of the interviews with him on the on the dvd Mm -hmm. but he talked about how they kind of did these strange little you know ad spots that like the advertisers didn't want but then would like play film festival (laughs) you know or play a film festival or something you know so like i think Just based on his own personal experience and like where he was coming from when he made this film, like Downey, I think, is definitely thinking of the possibilities of advertising as artistic expression.
1: Yeah. And what about about Boots Riley? I mean, there's kind of an interesting success level that he seems to be able to maintain. And maybe it's going to continue with this film of being... You know, kind of the head of a, what a, you would say maybe a cultish,ly sure. appreciated yeah, band, sure. mm-hmm. and he's made this movie that was, seems to be destined to be cultishly appreciated without necessarily busting through the mainstream. I mean, it almost it feels like he understands like where to level the f- film at. You know, or maybe I mean, or, or say he,
3: he's. Market savvy. He's market. Savvy. <laughs> he's
1: a, he's a, he's a right. He's a market savvy person who's very distrusting of markets. But like he's positioned himself so savvily with this film, and then I guess with the coup as well, which you you can speak. You all can speak to better than I can.
3: Yeah, well, I mean it, it helps that they're both good. I mean it helps that they're they're. Uh, saying something and saying saying it well, and there's an audience for that. I mean, you know, but again, you're getting we're getting into capitalist explanations as to why Boots Riley's career has, has worked as well as it is, and, and uh you can't escape, you, you know, can't escape, like can't anybody escape anybody the else. system. But uh, yeah. but no, I mean, I, I think I think this film, I think this film is destined to be talked about and, and have an audience. And uh, what if it's people that don't discover it on this first uh, theatrical run, will we'll pick it up later. But uh, of course, we would recommend that you do go out and see it in the theater when you get a chance. It it's certainly uh, plays well with the crowd, uh, too, which is was, which was our way of saying that Sorry to Bother You is, is in theaters now, and, like, and will be by the time you hear this episode. Uh, Asher Putney Swope is available to rent online from a couple of streaming services, on a couple of the more mainstream ones. It's also been on DVD a couple of times, both as an individual disc and as part of Criterion's uh, Up All Night with Robert Downey Sr. box set, which also contains a handful of other Downey films.
1: It's also the YouTube version of it. It's pretty good.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, Mr. That's right, that's right. Right. Scott, you gave me Bring so much. Crap. Yeah, well, you were watching
1: some. You're watching some like arti- uh, some spectacularly beautiful art film, were you not?
2: Uh, I was watching uh, Rebecca. Are you? Are you uh, are
1: yeah, you exactly. S- Rebecca's gorgeous.
3: Are you smashing the system by stealing it? Yeah. <laughs> you might say so. Yeah, right. I, I've
1: been known. I've been known. How revolutionary to, uh, of you! Revolutionary is definitely something that people have referred to. me
3: as. <laughs> 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 All right, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, we kind of spoiled this already, <laughs> but why don't we have you, while we're still talking about, sorry to bother you a little bit, what's been good for you in the world of film or film-related items
2: lately? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm going the film-related item route this week. Um, So... I was really taken with the music in Sorry to Bother You, which was a collaboration between The Coup and the unfailingly eclectic indie dance group Tune Yards, uh, who made the film's really uh, kind of gripping, erratic score. Uh, And coming out of the film, I was all pumped to pull up the accompanying soundtrack. But as of this recording, there isn't one yet. Uh, Riley has said on Twitter, there's a forthcoming soundtrack featuring all new songs and appearances by Janelle Monae, Killer Mike, Eat 40 and more. But as of yet, that hasn't materialized beyond a single with, uh, featuring Lakeith Stanfield, which is very good. There's a chance that by the time this episode comes out, that soundtrack will be out. But uh, in the meantime, I wanted to share the sort of soundtrack replacement I cobbled together after seeing the film. The first, as kind of we've already mentioned, is The Coup's 2012 album, which is confusingly titled Sorry to Bother You. In an interview with Riley, he said that he'd actually finished the first draft of the film shortly before releasing this album uh, and originally thought it might end up being the soundtrack, but discovered after shooting it didn't really fit the aesthetic of the movie. Um, so there will eventually be a soundtrack called Sorry to Bother You by The Coup, but there's al- already an album by The Coup called Sorry to Bother You. And uh, if you responded to this film, i say it's definitely worth your time. The Coup, as we discussed, have always been kind of adept at blending sort of party rap sounds and motifs with like clever, witty, socially aware lyrics and ideas. Uh, and this album definitely extends that trend, but with a stronger funk element coming through than in older albums. Uh, this one is all live instrumentation with no samples, which... Gives it sort of a live party atmosphere, except it's a party where Boots Riley is lecturing you about education reform and Marxist principles. Mm -hmm. Um, So hopefully you can see how that kind of aligns with this film, and uh, we'll check it out. Uh, The second related recommendation is for Toon Yards' latest album, which came out at the beginning of this year and is called I Can Feel You Creep Into My Private Life. Uh, Tune Yards has a very distinctive sort of atonal skittering sound that brings in a lot of world music influences, uh, but this album takes them in a much more dance music oriented direction that I think makes for a very complimentary listen with uh, that Koo album Sorry to Bother You. It's also an album that has sort of a thin veneer of party music that overlays more Urgent and sober lyrical concerns, uh, and with this album and in particular, frontwoman Meryl Garbus is engaging lyrically with some weighty ideas regarding appropriation and privilege in her "quote unquote" white woman's voice, as she puts it in a song titled "Colonizer." Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of what this album is wrestling with. It's a really arresting, sort of immediately catchy album that reveals some deeper and more difficult conversations at its core. And uh, listening to it, you can totally understand why Riley would want Toonyards Yards to score his film. So I've been kind of cycling between these two albums for the past few days uh, in lieu of an actual Sorry to Bother You soundtrack. So uh, if that hasn't materialized by the time uh, this episode drops, I would suggest the Coos' 2012 album Sorry to Bother You and Toon Yards new album, I Can Feel You Creep Into My Private Life. Scott, what about you?
1: I... Posted, I think, with everybody else, uh, sort of a halftime top uh, ten list, and my top five were like things that we had already ta- talked about on the show: Annihilation, First Reformed. I, I mentioned a- as a as a next picture show. Did you wonder who fired the gun and the rider But I did. I- we never really got a chance to talk about the Lynn Ramsey movie. You were never really here, which I really love, and which just became available. Uh, recently to stream. Uh, Lynn Ramsey did Morvern Collar and, and Ratcatcher. Morvin Collar was the inspiration, incidentally, for my old film column new cult canon that was kind of the movie that i really wanted to write about and then that kind of sparked this thought about doing a bunch of other sort of recent cult films but in any case you were never really here is an existential thriller that's sort of a riff on taxi driver there's a lot of shared elements there's a loner anti-hero with a military background there's a political campaign there's an effort to save quote-unquote an underage girl from a prostitution ring so they have those connections but in true lynn ramsey style it is a much more elliptical and internalized piece in which you kind of discover through this character played by joaquin phoenix just how much damage has been done to him over time and how soul hurt he is you know stripped of the bone it's really a pretty brutal version of like a taken or a john wick or the equalizer you know just one man just kind of blasting his way through or in this case hammering his way through a lot of bad guys in the criminal underworld but the difference is that Ramsey sort of turns it inward uh, and reveals more about this man who's only known violence since childhood and who cannot keep himself from perpetuating it so uh, I really recommend it I mean it is a tough watch Um, you have to be nice and strong stomached but it's very bold Uh, it's got an amazing Johnny Greenwood score that she uses quite sparingly I thought, for a score that, that's that awesome. But she also likes to use a lot of songs as fans of Mormon Collar. No. So um, she's got a little bit of both in there. And I think it's one of those movies that's going to get better every time you watch it because his films are really dense with a lot of visual and aural information. And uh, yeah, you, you all saw it, right? Did anyone else see it?
2: Not, not yet. I saw it with I saw it with you. No, it with no it's great. Yeah. yeah.
3: And, and just, you know, you say it's a tough set and it is, but just something really interesting with violence that I won't spoil here. But, uh, that's true. About what, what gets shown and what doesn't. But, and what yeah, it gets shown. yeah,
1: Definitely.
2: Hmm. Yeah, we, we talked about doing it on, on the show and pairing it with Taxi Driver, and we're, we're stymied by uh, the Chicago screening schedule and uh, recording times, yeah. so it, it unfortunately never came together, but we found another reason to talk about... We were going to pair it with Taxi Driver, <laughs> yeah. uh, and we found another reason to talk about Taxi turns Driver. Out,
1: it turns out, Taxi Driver is a film that people uh, yeah. reflect yeah. on quite often. So
3: yeah. you're a taxi driver. <laughs> Keith? Oh boy! Well, I've um, I've been watching a lot of Stephen King films uh, lately. Everyone uh, for a couple pieces I'm writing, and and some of them weren't so great. Some of them were pretty good though, and and you know after you get past, I think the early King adaptations, like I say, 1985 and and before, you get three great ones. Yep. You, you get Carrie. You got shining. You got the dead zone, which I, you know, I think is probably not acknowledged enough how good that movie is. It's, the it's dead really, zone, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really great. It's Cronenberg and King kind of. Christine's you know,
1: not far from there either. Yeah, I need, to, I
3: need to watch that one again. Yeah. That one again. But I was um, confirmed how much uh, how good Cujo is. Cujo is okay. is is just a really solid, tight technically accomplished genre film. It's uh, from Louis Teague, who previously um, dealt with dangerous beasts on the film Alligator, uh, which is a which is very good kind of uh, kind of Jaws inspired film set in in, in New York. Um, Kudrow is is I don't know, probably have to tell you, it basically boils down to Mother and and son fending for themselves against a rabbit Saint Bernard while trapped in a in a pinto. It is whatever the opposite of product placement is. The Ford Pinto <laughs> is because everything goes wrong, and it's and it's very vulnerable to to a dog attack. But I mean, it it it's a pretty faithful adaptation of the novel. It brings in a lot of what. Makes the book work, which is not just big dogs are scary, but it's all like sort of the, the disintegrating family and domestic abuse and all the things that make Stephen King an interesting writer beyond his ability to summon up scares. It's all kind of kind of there in a tight little ninety-minute package. It does not keep the ending of the book. I think I think audiences would have torn the, the, the seats out of theaters if they had. But uh, if you're looking for a good good little thriller, uh, Cujo, it'll 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 do.
0: That dog is surprisingly frightening. Uh, yeah, if, if you read anything about the making of that movie, you know it's it's one of those stories of like how we took a big friendly dog and tried to use camera trickery and bacon in order to make it terrifying. <laughs> but it's so much more convincing than most most dog work. Like very often with films, you can kind of sense that the dog is like literally two frames away from like wagging its tail and licking the person it's snarling uh-huh. at but kudo is scary
3: yeah it's very and I'm a dog I'm a dog person
1: so I, those are those are big cuddly lo- lovable dogs um, yeah, by and, the
0: end of it he's he, like he's a, a hideous mess yeah, it's yeah I really disturbing yeah.
3: rabies man don't get don't don't try it um,
2: how about <laughs>
0: Don't your
2: Recommended Cujo, Not it? recommended. Can't eat a refrigerator. Yeah.
0: Don't recommend rape.
3: Even watching that film, it's like, oh, so cute. Just chasing that rabbit. Don't chase that rabbit. Yeah, yeah. There's don't, bats don't in that. Cujo. There's bats in that hole. All right, Todd how about you? Uh, what What have what you seen lately?
0: Uh, not a whole lot, but uh, the other day I was on Netflix and a new film popped up that I hadn't heard of because Netflix did, as far <laughs> as I can tell, no advertising for this whatsoever. They are, guys, they are so erratic about what they tell us about in advance. And this was just one of those, eh, it's Friday, let's drop a film. Um, It's called Tau, T A U. Uh, It is the first film of Federico D'Alessandro, who is uh, mostly known for doing a lot of um, special effects work and behind the scenes animatic work and uh, various functions on like some of the big Marvel movies. A lot of the big Marvel movies, he was the animatics supervisor or storyboard artist for um, a bunch of the Thor films, Captain America, First Adventure, and Winter Soldier, uh, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, and also just films like Terminator Genesis, Where the Wild Things Are. Um, So he's been in the industry for a while in a very non-visible role, and he made this little film. This is one of those films of discovery that, like, the less you know about it going in, the better. But the setup is sort of woman is trapped in a smart home. And before that, it's woman is abducted by scary man with strange technological plans. It goes into a place that reminds me a lot of the women in basement thrillers from a couple years ago, Ex Machina and 10 Cloverfield Lane, that particular sort of vein of clever, dynamic woman trying to fight. Insurmountable odds in an environment that's against her. In this case, the environment that's against her is a smart home um, run by a computer voiced by Gary Oldman and owned by a very another very uh, hostile Elon Musk-like uh, techno producer character played by Ed Skrein, who you might remember as the villain from Deadpool. And it's not anywhere near as good as Silence of the Lambs, but it goes in a very Silence of the Lambs direction in terms of his relationship to her and how they interact in this house and with the project that emerges from it, um, which is very much about emergent technology. I'm not going to get into plot details past that because it's a film of discovery, but it is... It is certainly a small film and a flawed film. It's the kind of film that Netflix likes to pick up for cheap and just kind of toss on the site and see how it performs. But it surprised me in a number of ways. One of the big ones being uh, the star is Micah Monroe. He'll uh, you will remember as uh, the female lead in It Follows and The Guest. Mm. She's really really good. She's just she's she's got the horror movie uh, necessity of like coming across as tough and vulnerable at the same time of being able to uh, evoke both fear and determination. And this role demands a lot of her. She's very often the only person on screen in the movie. So you get to see her kind of work her way through her paces. Screen's pretty terrifying, and Gary Oldman is really interesting in a way that kind of reminded me of, of Kevin Spacey's robo-character uh, in Moon. So this is definitely not something that you should drop everything and run to see, um, but if you like... Little personal, uh, creepy techno thrillers, and and particularly if you like films like Ten Cloverfield Lane, uh, and if you're already a subscriber to Netflix and you're just looking for the next thing to watch over there, I would recommend it. Tau, T A U, Tau. Tau. <laughs>
3: <laughs> sounds a lot. Sounds a lot like Demon Seed. Have you seen that?
0: I have not. <laughs> okay, right. Wait, is that? Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Electric Dreams. <laughs> yeah,
3: no. different, different, well, different,
0: well, but similar.
3: similar. Are they different though?
0: Ooh. Yeah.
3: That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing comes out August 7th and 14th. Tasha, what are we discussing?
0: Okay, my mission, which I choose to accept, is to describe this pairing to you in one minute or less. Back in 1996, Brian De Palma directed the original Mission Impossible, an action film starring Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, a government agent with a group called the Impossible Mission Force. When the group is compromised, he goes on the run with disavowed IMF agents played by Ving Rhames and John Reno. At the time, the movie was hailed for its cutting-edge special effects and for Cruise's strong physical performance as Hunt, but the series, inspired by a 1960 TV series about a similar group of daring agents using high-tech to perform missions with a high-degree of difficulty has had to constantly up its game to keep up with the times. The sixth film in the Mission Impossible series, written and directed by returning director Christopher McQuarrie, is Mission Impossible Fallout. It brings crews back yet again, and given the title, it's appropriate that it deals with the fallout of McQuarrie's 2015 film, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. We're going to look back on the run of Mission Impossible films, consider what makes Ethan Hunt such an enduring hero, and discuss how the franchise has evolved to keep pace with our conception of government agents fighting problems behind the scene. Whew. Mission accomplished. Your podcast player will self-destruct in three minutes.
3: Wow. We better get this outro done quickly then. We'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Putney Swope. Sorry to bother you. And anything else film-related you'd like to talk about, we want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve?
2: Uh, you can find my work at the culture section at box.com and you can find me occasionally tweeting on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? <laughs> uh, you can find me at Tasha Robinson on Twitter where I f- tweet somewhat more frequently
0: <laughs> and I am the film and TV editor at The theverge.com where you can find my writing. Scott?
1: You can find me on Twitter at scott underscore tobias um I tweet about film sometimes <laughs> most of mostly these days i get really mad about politics um you can also find my work at uh new york times washington post uh, vulture variety NPR, pr and other
3: outlets keith ah, uh, you can find me on twitter at kfip 3000 where i mostly just tweet sad things uh i <laughs> don't no, no. But uh, but um, you can find my work at uh, The Verge. You can find it at Vulture. You can find it at Rolling Stone. I've got a p- recent piece in Polygon. Um, I'll be in the Chicago Reader at some point. Uh, I'm all over the place these days. And I collect my clips at keithphipps.com. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash Show. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan, the snake jakes for his assistance, producing the podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base. Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The next picture show is probably a part of the films, funny family of podcasts and the panoply network. Please tune in next time.
0: Oh Yeah.